1: Welcome to the Daily Face-Off Show, your everyday source for the latest news with top-notch
0: insight and analysis. Live every weekday at noon Eastern. Most things don't
2: live up to the hype, but the Battle of Alberta, oof, that did not disappoint. Welcome into the Daily Face-Off Show. I'm in Calgary covering the Battle of Alberta. Mike McKenna is in St. Louis. Mike, how are you doing?
3: Man, I'm fine, but who cares about me? You're in Canada, you're in Alberta, and you saw a barn burner last night. Have you recovered yet from that game between the Flames and the Oilers?
2: <laughs> just absolute chaos, it really, at every turn. Like just when you, you know, I, I remember looking to uh, my colleague next to me in the press box saying, 5 one Like this game stinks. Like I can't believe that this is what we're seeing in the battle of Alberta and and man, I just then at some point I'm saying to myself, "Hey." If the Oilers can just make it 6-4 before the end of the period, they're going to be fine. They did even better than that. Let's throw two minutes and 30 seconds up on the clock, Mike, and let's dive in and talk about all of it. And when you look at this wild and crazy 9-6 win for the Calgary Flames, they take game one. Man, there's so many facets of it. Um, When you look at it from a Flames perspective, we'll start there first. What – you know, what was most encouraging to you on, on what was really a weird night?
3: Well, the start of the game, I mean, <laughs> Flames go out and pot two right off the bat, but they also took it to the Oilers uh, from a physical standpoint, Frank. And uh, I'm not sure that the Oilers are ready for it. They looked like they were so flat foot and unprepared and unaware throughout those first 10 minutes. And it was three nothing before you knew it for Calgary. But I remember thinking, like, this game's not over. Uh, and as you mentioned, when it went to five one, I thought, OK, the game's over. Well, we saw better than that. But in terms of Calgary, I mean, look at the strength of their lineup. Okay, Matthew Kachuk has a hat trick, uh, but it's also on the back of Goudreau having three assists. And I thought Elias Lindholm, best player on the ice for Calgary, uh, played all three situations, goal and assist for him, and 55% in the faceoff circle. You saw it go through. Even Nick Ritchie draws in, or sorry, uh, Brett Ritchie draws in and scores a goal for Calgary that They were on top of things offensively, at least throughout their lineup. And I thought that they pushed the Oilers around for a lot of the game. They got under their skin and they made the Oilers deviate from their game plan. And Frank, I just think that Calgary, in terms of their preparedness for this game, against this team with the Oilers in particular, they had it drilled down in advance. And it looked like Daryl Sutter gave them an offensive roadmap to victory. But they got to clean up a little bit defensively if they're going to try to get this series from the Oilers.
2: Yeah. And as much as the Oilers are probably sitting here today, Mike saying, you know, we're probably not going to have that same type of effort from Mike Smith. He'll be better in game two. Our team will be better defensively. The big plus for the Calgary Flames is Jacob Markstrom is probably also going to be significantly better. You know, I was wondering at a certain point as that game went on, will Daryl Sutter end up choosing to pull Markstrom because he really struggled as as the Oilers came back in that game. Uh, You know, it was pretty ugly Mm -hmm. there for a stretch in the second period. Matthew Kachuk saying it was their worst 15 to 20 minutes of hockey, not only of the playoffs, but also of the season. For me, it, it's you hit on it. It's the physicality, it's the forecheck. It was, you know, just furious from the Calgary Flames. The Oilers didn't have an answer for it. The Flames were better in the neutral zone. They were better in almost every facet of the game. And what I loved about the game, and I think, you know, is is a big it's it's scary for the Oilers heading into game two, is they were also In control and under control. You know, you mentioned, you know, just how crazy that game was. And and you think back to, you know, Matthew Kachuk really being at the center of it all. And the word that Daryl Sutter used after the game was control, because that was Mm -hmm. one thing that was missing from Kachuk's game in the Dallas series. And that you know, it seemed like he went after Klingberg, and that kind of took him out of the mix for a couple games. Just trying to chase him around, gets the fight, and it just—he didn't seem like himself. And now you see Matthew kachuk hes back. I wrote a story today on DailyFaceoff.com about a guy that's a handful in most normal situations for any team—a 104-point unicorn for the Calgary Flames. But when he's at the top of his game and he's in the mix, a guy that seems like he was born for the Battle of Alberta, Mike that he's borderline unstoppable for the Edmonton Oilers is going to be a huge key in this series. So let's talk about the Oilers' perspective of it. When you break down that game between the wonky start from Mike Smith, two goals in the first 51 seconds, sloppy neutral zone play, ineffective play from the injured Leon Dreisaitl, uh, the inability to handle that forecheck, and a team that really took some runs and liberties at Connor McDavid. What is the most concerning part of game one for you from the Oilers perspective?
3: Well, it's the five on five play more than anything else. You can take the emotional aspect of it. The Oilers just simply weren't good enough in that area of the game. And it's been like that all season against Calgary. I mean, who could forget March 26th, the, the Oilers got drubbed nine to five by Calgary, and all nine of those goals were five on five. Well, saw more of that last night. So that's area number one. I actually would have kept Mike Smith in the net. I don't think changing goalies changes momentum at all. I know McDavid scored right after to make it three to one after Mike Smith was pulled, but you could see just how out of sync. The Edmonton Oilers looked with Miko Koskinen in net. Koskinen doesn't know where to put the hmm. puck to get it to his D. The breakouts ineffective. Like I just thought that they looked lost with him, and I would have stuck with Smith. And I think that the Oilers frankly, got a little lucky that Markstrom was off his game. I didn't like three of the goals on Markstrom in the second period. Neither Hyman's goals I thought were any good. So I thought that this game looked better for the Oilers than it really was in terms of the scoreboard. Uh, And they're going to have to push back. And Evander Kane is going to have to have an answer for Matthew Kachuk because you touched on Kachuk. Kachuk has a natural foil in Evander Kane in this series. He didn't have that against Dallas. Jamie Benn's not going to engage Matthew Kachuk the same way. Kachuk had the upper hand on Kane all night long, and Kane is a huge part of that offense. And you touched on Drysidle, Drysidle on the wing with McDavid. Okay, that's a super line. Drysidle's good in a straight line, but right now he's not playing center. He may take faceoffs. That puts extra stress on McDavid. That doesn't let the Oilers use their entire forward court. And that down the stretch was one of their greatest strengths under Jay Woodcroft.
2: Yeah, I'm in full agreement with you. You can take the comeback. You can take the score out of the mix. It was way better for the Oilers on paper than it really appeared. Uh, complete and total domination is what it was for the Calgary Flames, particularly at even strength. The Oilers had no answer for that four-check. You know, they're in their own end, and then you look at the Oilers all season long. They really struggled against teams that four-check and check well, and, and that was <laughs> certainly problematic in Game 1. You know, it's funny, you mentioned the goaltending. I I was wondering if at a certain point they would have considered putting Mike Smith back in. Like, what a wild night for the netminders.
3: Yeah, it was. I I don't like putting a goalie back in ever. I mean, once you're out, you're out to me. Uh, And I even didn't even touch on the power play for Edmonton. Three shots on it? Come on. Like, you're the Edmonton Oilers. Even if your game's not going well, you got to be able to bank on your power play doing something. Again, Calgary's hard pressure, especially on the puck, on loose pucks in their zone, on the kill, is what changed it. Calgary just wanted it more last night.
2: Yeah, and the funny thing about all that is Connor McDavid was still a force in that game—a four-point night, exactly. Is someone that played almost 26 minutes a night, nearly three minutes more than the next closest skater on either side. Insane. He just doesn't really have a lot of help, and that's not a new story. If you're an Edmonton Oilers fan, Uh, let's talk about the New York Rangers and their game one against the Carolina Hurricanes. Was this just one game or was this a big missed opportunity for the Rangers to take game one?
3: I think it's a big missed opportunity. Anytime you have a chance to go up in a series, and we've seen it play out, the numbers. The team that wins the first game in a series wins more often than the other club. No matter how well the Rangers may have played through two periods, no matter how happy Gerard Gallant may have been with his team and the way they performed, they scored one goal. And they did it against a team, to me, in Carolina that's just so tight defensively and plays as a unit. It's a different team than Pittsburgh. New York's not going to be able to score their way out of this series. They need to be able to perform at both ends of the ice and in the neutral zone, Frank. And the third period, to me, was really concerning for the Rangers. I thought they were a total no-show four shots on goal uh, you know they, they never seem to get any mojo going and this game was really played five on five frank so the rangers have to be able to do it themselves with their speed uh with help from the back end and that's something that i clued in on last night was that you look at Trua, who played over 28 minutes of five on five hockey keandre miller's over 25 and even fox at 22 and a half, like, I think the Rangers are going to have to spread that load out a little bit more amongst their D and trust their D if they're going to be able to have the energy to compete late in a game against the Hurricanes. And we saw how that played out in overtime.
2: Yeah, I agree with you in that they certainly should have been able to close that game out. But I tend to think that it was more of just one game for the Rangers because you look at the way the first two periods unfolded they really had the upper hand for large stretches of it. And they were able to do that, generate more consistent pressure around anti-Ranta and the Hurricanes net, certainly than they were able to do at any period through the first half of their series against the Pittsburgh Penguins. It sort of looked like they picked up a little bit where they left off and they were able to do all that Mike on a night where their first line had absolutely gotten caved in at even strength where Mika Zibanejad and Chris Kreider, that, that whole group, they really struggled to get anything going. And, you know, the fact that they were still in that game, still close, um, you know, to me, I think bodes well for them, at least as this series moves on. A game that they should have closed out, but still, um, you know, for a team that had so many comebacks in the last series that I don't know that you can certainly say at any point that the Rangers are going to be out of it against this Carolina team.
3: Yeah, and you hope that they don't have a big emotional downfall from even – Capo missing the net in the third. Day. I mean, like, wide open game on the line. And this could have put it all away for the Rangers if it goes in. And uh, you hope that that just doesn't play, right? It doesn't turn into what if, coulda, have, shoulda, have, woulda have type of things. Put your head down, keep playing. They had a good game from Shishjurkin. They'll need more than that. The Rangers are definitely in this, but I wonder if this game doesn't come back to bite them, Frank.
2: Yeah, Mike, we've seen so many games the all season long and in the playoffs team misses empty net other team capitalizes garnet hathaway with the washington capitals in that series against the panthers they were Mm -hmm. that close to closing out that game and the panthers ended up winning in overtime so speaking of an overtime game we had one in game one between the colorado avalanche and the st louis blues Oof I don't know how much or how much longer Jordan Bennington can keep up, you know, 50 some saves in, in game one. And he stood on his head. You mentioned in your on daily that it was the best game that you had seen Bennington play since 2019. That's a long time ago, but what can mm-hmm. the blues do to counteract this abs team and get back in the series?
3: Well, first off, like, they've got to play their fastest lineup. And I, I didn't really agree with Craig Brube's decision to start the game with Shen on the left wing on the top line with O'Reilly and Perron rather than playing center deeper in the liner because it, like Shen can crash and bang and he's effective, but it doesn't let the speed of the team come through as much like you want to have Shen being able to track pucks. So and you want to be able to have Ivan Barbashev as your hitter when he's playing center, he can as much. So that was my first gripe with with what the Blues did. But I think more than anything is that they just didn't work. And they didn't compete. Now, these are keywords from Craig Berube, the head coach of the Blues. But you got to look at why that compete's not there. And to me, it's all skating. When the Blues don't support the puck and each other over the ice, when they don't play tight together, when they don't move as a unit, they're not successful. And it feeds into turnovers. It feeds into a transition game of, the, of Colorado that can go right back the other direction. And I think that that's tough. And when you look past the tactical side of things for the Blues, you look at individual efforts. Second line for that team, Bushnevich, Thomas, Tarasenko. They didn't register a shot on goal. So I think from the beginning, St. Louis was behind the curve. They weren't ready. They're at altitude. All those excuses. But I think it could be counteracted by them simply getting their feet going, not being as worried about running Colorado through the boards unless they have that chance, support the puck. The puck's the most important thing on the ice. And if you give it to the Colorado Avalanche, it's coming right back to haunt you. And Bennington's not going to be able to play like that for a full four to seven games, man. You got to play better in front of him if you want to have a chance if you're the Blues.
2: I don't care who's in that. No one can play like that for four to seven games. It's you no. know, You're bound to be broken by the abs if that's the game plan that you're going to have. Um, you know, It's interesting you mentioned the speed and, and, and how that could be a factor for the Blues. By the way, the adjustments from Craig Berube, he pushed every right button. I thought he really was one of the stars for the Blues in the first round with the adjustments that he made as that series went on against the Minnesota Wild. So I'd expect a little bit of a different approach in Game 2 for the Blues. And got to say, there's also opportunity there. As much as the Avs pounce on you with that speed, they do have a, a four man attack at times. And if you can get the puck moving the other way quickly from a Bennington save to highlight the point that you made about the speed, well, you have the ability to create some odd man rushes against this Colorado team that mm-hmm. sometimes leaves themselves a little bit vulnerable. So uh going to be interesting to see if they can get back to level ground uh, in Denver, be, pretty big boon for the blues especially the way that game one played out in the latter stages 13 to zip shots in overtime i'm not sure that the blues touched the puck then uh to get back home even 1-1 let's get to the all 32 today we're joined by ryan clark from the athletic Pleased to welcome back to the Daily Faceoff Show, Ryan S. Clark from The Athletic and National Hockey Writer, who is dabbling in a lot of different series as this goes on. This is the All 32 delivered by DoorDash. Ryan, you typically spent the season covering the Seattle Kraken. You've now been focusing a bit on the Florida Panthers during their playoff run. And we wanted to bring you in to talk about the Panthers because to me, Ryan, they still don't look quite like the team that we saw in the regular season and we had lots of question marks about their ability as a high octane juggernaut offense would their game translate well to the playoffs what did you see through round one and as we've now dipped our toe into the water in round two against the tampa bay lightning how do they find a way to get back to themselves or can they
1: Well, there's a couple things you just said that we can touch on, and one of them being sort of what happened in Game 1 when it came to their penalty kill. Yes, three of Tampa's goals come on the power play, but it's also a microcosm of something that's been an issue for the Panthers this postseason, which is they've allowed 10 power play goals, which is the most of any team in the postseason. They've given up the second most high danger chances. Whereas if you look at the Lightning, and this probably won't come as a surprise, they leave the NHL with 10 power play goals. 61 shots or second in scoring chances and our first of 27 high danger scoring chances on the power play. But then when you look at the power play itself, it's also just the fact that what Tampa is able to do. So you think about the first goal Nikita Kucherov was able to set up like, yes, he makes that move to get Aaron Ekblad to bite, but it sets up Corey Perry for a tap-in. You think about the goal that gives him up 3-1. I mean, yes, Kucherov scores, but it's Sorelli narrowing himself to the point where he has a screen in front of Sergei Bobrovsky. And really, he's either in position to either just shield Bobrovsky or be there for a redirection or even to happen if there's a rebound. And again, it leads to a goal. And it was the same thing on the 4-1 goal. Mikhail Sergachev gets a shot from the point. Uh, it's one of those things where, like, you have players that are near the net. You have Ross Colton, who's in the low slot already and, again, was ready for a redirect or, or able to, to grab a rebound. And that's exactly what happened. But then your point about sort of this team as a whole. One thing we saw about the Panthers was their ability to score all throughout their lineup is what made them so difficult. But here's the thing. 13 of their 21 goals have been scored by Carter Verhage, Claude Giroux, Alexander Barkoff, and Sam Reinhart to this point in the postseason.
3: Well, let's take that a little bit further and talk about to me what's the glaring problem for the Florida Panthers. They're 0 21 on the power play. And this is a team that's been dynamite offensively this year. They've got all the tools you could ever need between Huberto, Barkov, Ekblad, Giroux. Let's go down the list. What's gone wrong here, Ryan? Why can't the Panthers score on the power play? <laughs>
1: there's a couple different ways of, of looking at that. So like, let's start with what they've done. And it goes back to something Andrew Burnett said, which is he thought they did some good things five on five, but they can't take six penalties a night. But the reason we go with the five on five is you look at what the shot at 10 percentage was for the Panthers. It was, 64, it was more than 63% over those first two periods. This is a team that can own and control the puck. But as for why they're not scoring, it's a litany of different reasons. But again, let's go back to the players who aren't scoring. And so when you think about what this team's greatest strength was, it was this. They had 13 players who scored more than 10 goals in the regular season. But as we just said in the last question... 13 of those goals have come from four players. So it's not only just you're trying to get them to score on the power play, but you're trying to find those additional reinforcements when you're even in even-strength situations. Because, again, just going back to the depth uh, of this team, another thing that hurts is Carter Verhage is going to be a game-time decision similar to Game 6 against the Capitals. They're without Mason Marchment. That's two guys that right there – One scored 18, one scored more than 20. That's essentially more than 40 goals you're missing from your lineup. And again, this is where you're going to need certain guys to step up. So like, for example, you look at their third line of Noel Chari, Anton Lundell, and Sam reinhardt guys that can be used in different situations. They had three shots last game. And this is where, if you're the Panthers, you've got to be able to find that consistency from your forwards, whether it's on the power play or an even strength. Either way, no matter the sequence, they've got to be able to get that consistency.
2: When you look at this team and how this, you know, the playoffs have unfolded now through the first number of games, do you sense it, all, Ryan, that their their confidence has been shaken, or do you think that they're, you know, still believing in what in their process and what they're
1: doing? It, it appears there's an understanding that you're learning certain things as you go along, because when you think about where they are right now, it's sort of what's the realistic expectation? Because people say, well. They should win it all because Vegas says they have among the best odds, them in Colorado. But here's the thing. We know the second round's been a problem for the Colorado Avalanche the last three years. And as far as the Lightning are concerned, not Lightning are concerned, excuse me, but as far as the Panthers are concerned, they're playing a team like the Lightning, which the Lightning have been here. But even then, the Lightning, it took time to get to this point. With the Panthers, we don't know if this is kind of the, the journey along the way or if they're going to get to the end product with the whole thing uh, in terms of trying to win the Stanley Cup this year. But one thing that is clear is you can see that they're trying to do all the things that need to be done, but at the same time, This is still a team that, again, what is the realistic expectation? But, again, this is why you bring in Claude Giroux. This is why you bring in Ben Sherrod. This is why you have a Patrick Hornquist. You can rely on these players who've been in these situations before, but at the same time, their experiences you must go through as a group in order to figure out what's the next path.
2: Yeah, no shortage of question marks and unknowns, but, Ryan, I think – That's also part of what makes this so fun as the Panthers try and figure this out against two-time defending Stanley Cup champs. This has been the All 32 delivered by DoorDash. You see the promo codes there at the bottom of your screen. DFODD if you're in Canada. DFODD US if you're in the United States. That gets you 25% off and free delivery on your first order. You know, so many crazy things happening in the playoffs. You don't want to cook. All your favorites and more delivered right to your door by DoorDash. Thanks, Ryan. Hey, thanks for having me all right mike it's time for our daily face off inbox question of the day hashtag ask dfo hit us up ask us a question this one from arpin he says how many of jt miller brock besser and connor garland get traded this summer for the vancouver canucks what's your call
3: uh, I'm going to say one. And, uh, you know, first off, there's other teams in the NHL besides playoff teams. <laughs> we kind of get reminded here. Um, I, I think that Brock Besser's on the hot seat here. I mean, that qualifying offer for seven and a half million dollars is looming large, especially when you have a centerman like J.T. Miller, who I would really like to keep in house if I'm Vancouver. And I was happy with how Connor Garland played. And Garland's got cause certainty for the next four seasons. I, I think that's a good bet there. I'd have to say Besser. What about you, Frank?
2: I'm going to say zero. I think the Canucks are going to try and shed salary in other areas. I think there's a multitude of options to handle Besser moving forward. We had Jim Rutherford on the DFO rundown and the president of Hockey Ops for the Canucks said last week, look, uh, you know, at this point with Besser, you know, we could just give him the one-year qualifying offer, much like the Columbus Blue Jackets did with Patrick Laine, seven and a half million bucks. Kick it down the, kick the can down the road for one year. See how Besser responds. He was dealing with a lot off the ice, as we know, a pretty emotional season for him. And you mm-hmm. know, then you figure it out later. He's still a restricted free agent at the end of it. Jim Rutherford also mentioned the idea of going short term, two, three year deals. See what that looks like. JT Miller, um, you know, I think there's a chance, of probably a long shot, that even if they don't get a new deal done with Miller, that they enter the season with him in the final year of his contract uh jim rutherford saying again we'll know by the draft where this thing might be heading in terms of their talks with jt miller on an extension and what that looks like and for the reasons you mentioned the cost certainty the way that he drags your team into the fight connor garland that's a guy that i'm not trading uh you know they spent a lot you know figuratively and literally to get him into their lineup uh, with the trade that they made with the Coyotes. And I think he's a guy that probably craves a little bit of stability at this point. He heard his name in rumors his first year with a new team. He talked about at the end of the season how hard it was to adjust to being in a new place, wants to impress after signing a big money deal. I don't know. I'd keep all three of these guys. Maybe that's just me. Yeah.
3: No, I'd, I'd like to keep all three as well. I just look at the possible return from Besser. Maybe there's a chance there, um, and again, just the uncertainty of it is what I would think. So, definitely, a real possibility either way that any, you know, could be all three that stay, could be less.
2: It'd be a monster for, for Miller if anyone wanted to step up to the plate as well. Yeah. Uh, no shortage of teams that would be interested in him. Let's bring in Tyler Remchuk for our daily face-off, daily bet segment. Tyler, please tell me that you had the over in the Battle of Alberta.
0: No. And actually, I just so I didn't say any of this publicly, but yesterday before we recorded our Oilers Nation pregame show, I was chatting with a few of the guys and I was like, you know, this feels like a game where these two sides are just going to like feel each other out and it'll be a real <laughs> slow start, like three, one, four, two. And uh, yeah, it's a good thing I didn't bet on that because and I Mike Smith entered the on chat. 200. Yeah, Mike Smith certainly came <laughs> he fully through. Uh, it. So yeah. yeah, honestly, betting on the playoffs is hard. Like I was even looking at tonight, like I could see Florida bouncing back. I could see Tampa rolling again because Florida's not themselves. I could see St. Louis coming back and evening up the series. You know, they kept it tight. Bennington's playing well, and although I could see Colorado going up to nothing, there's not a lot of value there either. So my brain is all in a big pretzel here. So I actually only have one play tonight, and it's a parlay, and I'm baking on two superstars coming through for me, starting. In that Tampa, Florida matchup where I'm taking Nikita Kucherov just to get a point. Just one. That's all he needs. I've been hitting a lot recently, so we're going to keep it easy for leg one of this parlay. It's minus 270. The payout's not good. But this guy's picked up a point in five of the eight games so far this postseason. And he had two last game. He's playing unbelievable. So I think we're pretty safe with Kucherov to pick up a point. The second leg of the parlay is going to be out in Colorado. where I like Kale McCarr to pick up an assist. At minus 150, the better payout of the two legs in this parlay. Listen, this guy had seven in four games in round one, and then he didn't pick up a single assist in game one as the Avs beat the Blues. I like Makar to bounce back. Maybe the Avs power play gets going, and that's what allows him to get on the score sheet. Minus 150 for a Makar assist. Parlayed with a Kucherov point. Pays out plus 128, and that's good enough for me. Nice and easy. couple superstars need to come through, and I'll be back in the wing column.
2: Yeah, hopefully you can untwist yourself from the pretzel that you're in. And Mike McKenna has been on fire, by the way, with our daily face-off parlays with PointsBet. If you're not following along, follow us on Twitter. Uh, He's McKenna's magic picks have been pretty magic. Thank you to Tyler. That brings us to our Garbage Time segment. And Mike, you thought the MVP of Game 1 in the Battle of Alberta was sitting in the stands.
3: It was from an entertainment standpoint. And Brady Kachuk brings the fire in the stands pun intended. Of course it's Calgary and you can feel the flames raining down. That happened to me in a game. I allowed six goals and it was somehow we won, but like watch him in the stands, man, like I, this guy is so excited for his brother and he's having the opportunity to be a fan. That's all this is. And I know that some internet warriors out there are like mad that the captain of another team's cheering for a different team. Well, he's cheering for his brother, man, and he's happy for him. And another moment that was really cool was seeing Big Walt in the building as well. Keith Kachuk's there. Matthew Kachuk scores a hat trick, and Walt's getting urged to throw that bucket on the ice and he goes, "No way. This is my favorite hat. I'm not throwing it out. No chance this is going." This is the type of stuff that we need in the game, Frank, like it's fun, it's loose, and it just builds around the excitement in that battle of Alberta. I'm glad that the whole Kachuk family's there because now we have something to rely on if we need viral content.
2: Yeah, no question. The Brady cam has become appointment television in the playoffs. And, you know, as you mentioned, the whole Kachuk family as well, taking it in. You have Big Walt there, his father, John, as well. So Matthew and Brady's grandfather in the stands, siblings, everyone's there. And, you know, if you thought game one was drunk, check out Brady Kachuk. A beer in hand, the- one in each pocket as he goes up the steps. <laughs> it's next level Bud lights in, in each hand Slapping fives oh. with everybody he had a he had a kid on his shoulders in, in last round man oh it's too good he's also wearing a budweiser shirt so it's it's even better the pride of st louis missouri no doubt about That's that right. uh, that'll do it for today's <laughs> daily face off show keep it locked up dailyfaceoff.com for all the latest throughout the stanley cup playoffs we've got you covered i've got a story up from game 1 of the battle of alberta about matthew also starring brady as well and uh we'll get you covered so uh we'll be back right here friday 12 noon eastern you know where to find us until then thanks to mike mckenna ryan clark tyler and our technical producer alex allard have a great day everyone
1: thanks for watching the daily face-off show make sure you hit subscribe on our youtube channel to never miss an episode